Hi, I'm Bradley Barth, senior reporter with SC Media, and I'm here at the RSA conference in San Francisco. Uh, my guest today is Tony Scott, the former federal CIO and CEO of the consulting firm, the Tony Scott Group. Uh, Tony, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Great to talk with you today. Uh, a strong focus that I'd, I'd like to have today as we chat uh, is about uh, some of the um, federal uh, cybersecurity policies and hygiene uh, that we're observing under this current administration. Uh, you served under the previous one, under uh, President Barack Obama. Uh, so I think a perfect place to start would maybe to be uh, to do a little bit of a compare and contrast. Uh, as somebody whose primary role was to ensure that uh, the uh, federal cyber infrastructure was well protected and defended. Uh, what are some of the major contrasts that you're seeing between how uh, cyber hygiene uh, was implemented uh, under your watch and, and how it is today under the current administration? Well, let me talk on two dimensions, really. So when we did the transmission, we published uh, to the transition teams a state of IT report, which covered all of the federal agencies and was an assessment of not only the progress that we'd made, but future risks that we thought needed to be addressed. So on the good news side, the Trump administration took that report, uh, has taken it seriously, and a lot of the recommendations in there have not only been followed through on, but uh, they continue to put the pressure on in terms of improving hygiene across um, you know, the federal agencies. So I'd say overall I feel pretty good about, you know, the at-large uh, state of uh, cybersecurity in the federal government. You could always make the case that there's a lot more to do as there always is in the cybersecurity space. But um, given where we were and, uh, and a lot of the things that we fixed during the last couple of years of Obama, and then the continued emphasis from Suzette Kent and her team, um, I'd, I'd say, you know, continued probably good progress. There's a lot of individual cases where you can say, maybe we took a step backward. So we didn't let President Obama use a, you know, personal cell phone right. or some of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, there's a lot of headlines that get made around that kind of thing. But the other thing that has happened, and you quickly realize, is time marches on. So um, the New York Times had a great article, whole section actually, on the trackability of people, and they tracked, you know, the president, they tracked senior aides, they tracked people in the military, uh, all using data that's not that hard uh, to get to. So. At any given point, there's always new vectors of mm. attack and new information that can be used to exploit um, whatever it is you're looking to exploit. And, and so I see this effort uh, that we all make, in no matter what our role is in cybersecurity, is one of escalating, uh, uh, you know, gamesmanship, if you will, and sure. something you can't ever sort of get away from. So, right. So, you know, good progress, but new things to be of course. Uh, worried about. Sure. 
Do you have a position on the administration's policy toward uh, banning the use of uh, Huawei devices or the use of TikTok, uh, things that obviously they're concerned about uh, Chinese uh, APT uh, influence and cyber espionage influence? Uh, give me your thoughts a little bit on that policy and how it's being enacted. Sure. I did a white paper on supply chain risk, which is the topic area that got everybody excited about uh, Huawei in particular. And the point of the white paper was pretty simple, which is I think a lot of the current efforts are malaligned, uh, don't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, and there are several key points. I won't. It was a 15-page white paper, so we don't have time to go into that. But uh, it has to do with, um, uh, first of all, tons of stuff is made in China. It's not just Huawei stuff. Every Apple device you have, every you know consumer product that you can get, um, everything has lots of Chinese components in mm -hmm. it. So I don't think it's appropriate to focus on just Huawei and say, because it's Chinese, it's bad. Mm -hmm. um, the second part of the paper is I looked at the supply chain practices of all the major OEMs, uh, not just Huawei. And the idea that you could plant something bad in a specific device at its point of origin and have any certainty that it was going to end up someplace where you wanted it to was a high cost, low probability chance of success sort of exercise. Mm -hmm. And when you realize that the real vulnerability of equipment, whether it's computers or network equipment or whatever, is during that long period of time when it's installed at the customer premises or in your house or whatever, and there's lots of software upgrades and patches and firmware updates and all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. That's the broad surface area. Much easier to attack, bigger probability of success. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think anybody who's, you know, highly motivated is going to pick a, you know, least resistance sort of path to, yeah. to compromise. And, and doing it as a part of the supply chain is one of the most difficult, least probability of success. And so, I love risk-based approaches to things. Mm -hmm. That, to me, the current uh, process doesn't look to me like it's really addressing the risk that mm -hmm. I think really exists out there. That's not to say there aren't bad people or, you know, things that have been compromised along the way. Right. But I think when you look at it broadly, that's a, you know, malaligned sort of uh approach. Right. Well, in, in a related question then, uh, because as you were just saying, you know, just because uh, it's a Chinese device doesn't necessarily make it a bad device. Um, you know, there have been some uh, preliminary efforts uh, from uh, federal lawmakers to uh, enact maybe some type of a broader uh, Internet of Things device uh, legislation to, again, ensure that uh, those federal agencies that are using uh, connected devices like that are using ones that are uh, secured and properly vetted. So is that maybe a little more along the lines of what uh, you're looking for in a, in, uh, in a, in a, in a legislation or a policy? Because it's not specifically picking on you know, one individual company. I, I think the most effective approach would be to have a 
recognized independent testing capability where no matter who the manufacturer is, no matter what country of origin, uh, you could send devices um, and have them tested for their cybersecurity, you know, uh, capabilities. Uh, everything is going to have some strengths and weaknesses mm -hmm. that are different. Uh, but you, we really need to be able to test and validate, and then I would favor a program of random testing once uh, you know things have been procured and installed. Uh, these are ways, and it can be done at the end of a wire. It doesn't have to physically bring you know equipment into a lab, but we need a standardized way of testing things that's universally accepted. Um, I, I love the work that NIST does, and mm -hmm. I would love to see, you know, they are the definitive world authority on testing and, and uh, standardization. Um, I'd love to see a NIST, you know, test certification kind of capability. It doesn't have to be done by NIST, but something that, you know, they have uh, endorsed, and put everybody's gear through it, mm -hmm. put all the software through it and then test it regularly. I think that's yeah. a much better approach than this sort of random pick a bad guy and, and uh, you know, blame them for uh, the world's problems uh, kind of yeah. thing. Let's talk a little bit about uh, election security policy yeah. as well. Now, election security uh, wasn't precisely in your exact bailiwick as uh, sure. federal CIO, but you were there for the policy meetings and certainly you're in a position to still comment on uh, cyber hygiene in in terms of the electoral infrastructure. Yes. So uh, let's look at 2020 and compare that to uh, 2016 when there was obviously a lot of uh, interference on the part of the Russians in particular. Yeah. Where are we better prepared now? Where have the lessons best been applied? Where are we still weak uh, considering that, you know, there's what, maybe, you know, seven months to go or six months to go before we sure. have our next big election, sure. so... Well, let's make sure we put things in the right buckets to start with. So, uh, during the 2016 election, um, we didn't see any uh, widespread evidence of uh, problems with the actual voting machines themselves, just to be clear. Mm -hmm. There have been a few cases where I think there's still some question about you know, was this actually impacted or not, but right. at a massive scale that would have changed the outcome of the election. Um, I never saw any evidence that there was compromise of the voting machines themselves. Mm -hmm. I think the same is likely to be true in this 2020 election. A couple of reasons. A, there's been a lot of focus on it. Um, the machines that are used are so broad and so diverse mm -hmm. that to to compromise any significant number of them is a mm -hmm. massive engineering effort that mm -hmm. I just think is unlikely. Right. The, the risk is still in the things leading up to the election, you know, the influences in social media, you know, compromise of, you know, the various parties' internal systems, the leak of information, the compromise of their email systems. Uh, all of those kinds of things, again, I think are a much bigger surface area, and, and if compromise could have a 
way more significant impact on the actual outcome of the election than mm-hmm. trying to attack the voting machines themselves. Right, but it, it but is it a legitimate concern? Because I, I I know that the, the reports out there are saying that the machines were, you know, largely you know or or entirely unaffected, but you know voter rolls. Uh, could sure. have been potentially, and you can disqualify voters or find ways to potentially, you know, nullify the, their votes, and uh, that's something that in in strategic uh, districts or states that are swing states could could make a oh I agree conceivable again difference. I think it's all of that stuff leading up to the actual yeah. election where I would be far more concerned and, yeah and it's not just uh, digital uh, interference there it's you know, all kinds of things that can make it, uh, you know, hard for people to vote or confuse them in terms of uh, who they're actually voting for. So yeah. that's where I think a, a lot more effort needs to be placed, for sure. And again, I think we've made some progress. There's awareness of it. Um, I'm not sure that we're good at preventing it or from a legislative uh perspective we figured out exactly what to do there mm-hmm. so yeah I think there's a lot more work to be done there right uh, going back to uh, questions a little bit about uh, federal cyber hygiene are you uh, heartened at all by the uh, trend that seems to be that uh, federal uh, bodies and agencies now seem to be much more open to uh, opening themselves up to the uh, the greater hacker community for uh, bug bounty uh, programs, things like, you know, hack the Pentagon, hack the Air Force. I think um, it wasn't that many years ago that there was much more of an element of widespread mistrust, and now it seems to be that maybe that that attitude is, is, is shifting. Yeah, again, i got to give Suzette Kent, the current federal CIO, and her team uh, a lot of credit here. We had done a few experiments in the um, at the end of the Obama administration, but as you correctly say, there was a lot of skepticism on all sides about whether this is effective and useful and, and so on. Um, our early results indicated to us that it probably or was likely that it was going to be a good thing, but I think they've done a good job of expanding that now and taking it seriously and and using that as a great mechanism. They've learned from industry, um, you know, who've done similar things in a few cases. And so I'd give them, you know, good marks on that uh, on that front. Um, and I think it's very valuable. I, I would like to see more of it, actually. Uh, coming from your perspective as someone who was responsible for maintaining cyber defenses at the highest level, you know, federal, um, are there any recommendations that you would make, any any chapters out of your playbook that you would recommend to much smaller municipalities that have been under siege uh, lately by uh, ransomware attacks where they just lack the uh, the resources necessarily and the funding to, to properly uh, repel these attacks and then find themselves in these very difficult situations of what do we do? Do we do we pay? Do we try to back everything up? And and in in certain cases, you know, certain municipal services are not running for weeks at a time. Uh, what would be uh, your advice to them? Well, a couple of things. Um, the the first one is this: it's primarily a matter of education, in my mind, and, and learning. Um, I'm fond of saying everything's been learned, 
just not by everybody. And so a lot of these things happen because of, you know, lack of training or education or awareness of how to prevent such things from happening. Um, so I strongly support the, the organizations like the state, uh, you know, CIO Association and, and all of the local uh, groups that get together and share information and share best practices and so on. That's one of the best ways to prevent these things. Um, but beyond that, um, every employee is a potential insertion point for malware. Every time an employee goes and does something on a computer or interfaces with a system or shares their password or you know any of the other things that you can do, that's a potential insertion point. And mm -hmm. so I think the effort has to be continuous in terms of you know, educating employees and staffers and contractors and so on. There, you can do a lot with technology and it keeps getting better. At the end of the day, you've still got to make uh, employees and contractors and people aware of the potential risk and, and what to do and what not to do. Uh, speaking of lessons learned, you know, some of the best lessons learned come from life experience and living through it. So I, I'd kind of like to take you back now uh, to your uh, tenure again as a federal CIO. Uh, one of the most you know, significant events that happened at your time there was the uh, infamous OPM breach. Um, so you know, what, looking back at it now years later, what are some of your you know, key takeaways from that, you know, looking back at it now with a little more perspective? Well, when that happened, um, and it happened shortly after I got into the federal chief information officer role. Um, this was the first time the government had been the victim of a big breach. And so as we initially responded to that, there was a lot of people in the room, but uh, it was not clear who should be in charge and, and who had the responsibility for initiating the response and, and doing any of the activities that would be part of a normal uh, breach response. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized at that moment, and of course, in the private context and all of the corporation uh, work I had done, we had rehearsed this over and over and over again, and it was always clear who was in charge and we knew what we were going to do. Um, so in the federal context, I was a little surprised that we hadn't, at that point, adopted some uh, framework for that. Um, nevertheless, we put one in place quickly mm -hmm. um, and then uh, managed the response. But I've talked to a lot of groups since then about some of the lessons learned. Yeah. And I'm a really big fan of practicing the response to a breach, whether it's a cybersecurity incident or a privacy breach or whatever the expectation that you as a team are going to go perform well the first time you do something, I think is just a silly notion. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't do that in sports, we wouldn't do that right. in any other context, but somehow uh, people think that uh, we don't need to do it until you know a breach happens. Mm -hmm. uh, so I encourage organizations, and the government in particular, to practice, 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 Yeah. do different scenarios, 
understand the strengths and weaknesses of your organization and team and guaranteed having done that yeah you'll do a better job of responding to whatever happens right when it happens right and it will yeah no it may, makes sense for sure yeah. Um, all right, my last question to you is going to be, um, I, I do want to focus for a moment on your current role as the CEO of the Tony Scott Group. Uh, so I'm just going to simply ask you, you know, what's top of mind right now for your client base? You know, what uh, in, in, in early 2020 here, uh, what's sort of the prevailing theme? What's the buzz? What are, what are people talking and asking you about? What do they need advice from you about? Well, there's a couple of things that we're really focused on. Uh, first of all, we invest in early stage cybersecurity startups. So we're looking at you know the next gen of uh, solutions to problems that uh, we think are happening or are about to happen. Um, so I don't want to talk too much about those today. We also have a consulting practice where we help organizations with their strategy and uh, go to market and uh, branding and, and those kinds of things. And the, the kinds of concerns that we're hearing from CIOs and CISOs and chief data officers are the convergence of a couple of things. One is all of the cybersecurity issues, but now also the growing concerns around privacy. Mm -hmm. With the passage of GDPR in Europe and the California Consumer Privacy Act, uh, and mirror legislation in a lot of other states. Um, the associated fines and brand damage that can happen from either a cybersecurity breach or a cybersecurity breach coupled with a privacy breach um, are just enormous in the minds of boards and uh, audit committees and even shareholders. Um, and so uh, Figuring out how to address those concerns effectively is on the minds of everyone these days. The second one is um, we've, in the IT community, talked about technical debt for years. We've talked about the need to continuously upgrade, modernize our equipment, you know, the systems and storage and networks and so on. But what's become increasingly apparent to me now is not only do we have pure technical debt, but we also have what I'd call architectural debt, meaning the way we put things together is very different now than the way we used to put things together. Mm -hmm. um, and so a modern refresh uh, in a digital context looks a lot different. It has a different architecture. Mm -hmm a different um, way of operating and, and so on, whether it's cloud or hybrid or uh, uh, you know various combinations. It just looks and operates differently than mm. the stuff that was 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. So on the investment side, and just to come back to that, we're looking at solutions that address that new architecture model yeah. uh, primarily. So. Um, but it's a concern for all of the audience that we address. Got it. All right, good stuff. Well, I mean, it's been an honor to speak with you today, Tony. I really appreciate it. And uh, this was Tony Scott, uh, former federal CIO. And I'm Bradley Barth, senior reporter with SC Media. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, have a safe day online.